From the studio of KPSU Portland, and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. The language was that they were not ready for independence yet. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Ryan Wisnor. And I'm Joshua Justice. The interwar period saw the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, which had long held sway over the Middle East. Replacing this power was the newly established League of Nations, regions that had held some degree of autonomy prior to the fall of the empire now found themselves mandate states, divided up under foreign rule. Outwardly, the League's claim was that these states were not, quote, able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world. Despite the fact that most of these mandate states gained independence by the 90s, the impact of these often superfluous divisions is still apparent today. The five-year civil war in Syria has generated the world's largest humanitarian crisis in several decades and has tested the global community's commitment to protecting refugees who flee conflict. According to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, 4.6 million Syrians have left their homes and sought shelter in neighboring countries, with only about 10% of refugees traveling to Europe. Nevertheless, the debate within Europe and North America has resulted in erratic relief policies with a significantly different level of commitment. Today we're joined by Laura Robson, professor of modern Middle East history at Portland State University. Her research focuses on the history of religious and ethnic minorities in the 20th century Arab world. She's written a number of books and articles about the subject and has made several speaking appearances around the United States. Robson's forthcoming book, States of Separation, Transfer, Partition, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, looks at relocation and partitioning proposals for various populations in the Middle East by the League of Nations during the interwar period. Today, we discuss her research uh, on the subject as well as examine the current refugee crisis from a historical perspective. Laura Robson, welcome to Beyond Footnotes. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Uh, let's begin by taking a look at what was the Middle East looking like during this interwar period between World War I and World War II, the geographic, the ethnic, and kind of the religious context of the area. Sure. So the Middle East has historically been a very pluralistic area um, in terms of ethnicities, languages, religions. And in the interwar period, the part of the Middle East that I'm looking at, which is the kind of Eastern Mediterranean, the Levant is sometimes called, was mostly placed under new, a new kind of colonial rule by Britain and France under the oversight of the newly formed League of Nations. So it is a time when the reexamination of ethnic and religious identifications is taking place alongside a rise in particular kinds of nationalisms that were mostly um, that were that were a consequence of the colonial occupation of the region. Um, so I think this is a period of real renegotiation and redefinition of these kinds of identifications, um, and also a period where particular concepts of what the modern nation state system would be were being kind of imposed on the region via these violent colonial occupations under the aegis of the new League of Nations. 
There's a quote from the president of the League of Nations Office on Refugees where he states that the Jews of Europe should be relocated, quote, as long as they can be together on their own. What do you think were the motivations for these relocation proposals? So this is really interesting because this is one of, you know, a number of kind of ideas about population movement and forced migration and population exchange that come up in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And I think that... There, one of the big arguments that I make in this book is that these concepts of population exchange and the idea of creating homogenous spaces, ethno-religious homogenous spaces for these new nation states, is defended in the international arena as a kind of um, promotion of minority rights and promotion of, of nationalisms, of self-determination, of sovereignty but that in practice, most of these policies actually had to do with the imposition of particular kinds of colonial control. So I think there are a mix of, um, of rationales and that a lot of those kind of ideological rationales about you know, providing spaces for minorities to govern themselves, which is in part what happens... Um, for the Jewish case, although that's not the only kind of backdrop for the, for that particular case, actually served to cover over some of the more colonial agendas that were being unfolded in the region over that period. So during that period, uh, in the wake of World War One, there was a system what was referred to as the mandate system. Right. Countries referred to as mandate countries. Mm-hmm. Um, is this part of that colonial imposition? Um, and I guess... Can you explain how the system worked and what were the true intentions of, in, in your, in your uh, observations yeah. for the mandate system? Yeah. So the mandate system was put into place um, as part of the peace agreements after the First World War. And it was basically a consequence of a disagreement um, or a disconnect, let's say, um, at the peace agreements between the goals of Britain and France who saw the war as having been primarily fought as a mode of maintaining and expanding their empires and a rise in anti-colonial nationalisms and this kind of Wilsonian language of self-determination that Woodrow Wilson, among others, was putting forth at the peace conference. So the mandate system was a kind of compromise between those two positions. Um, Theoretically, the League of Nations, which was the new system of international governance, put forward after the war, was supposed to be overseeing British and French colonial control over these former Ottoman territories with a view towards leading them to their eventual independence, right? So the language was that they were not ready for independence yet and that they needed some kind of Western sponsor or tutor um, to get them to the stage where sovereignty would be a real possibility. In practice, of course, um, Britain and France saw this as a mode of um, adding to their colonial empires and had a very real incentive to make the mandate last as long as possible. So in practice, there's very little effort. In fact, I would say there's kind of active demolition of the institutions of political participation that did exist um, prior to 1920 when the mandates were sort of beginning to be put in place. And a replacement of those institutions with something that looks very much like colonial governance elsewhere in places that are, you know, formally parts of the British and French colonial empires. Um, The structures are very, very similar. 
Um, and then, of course, in the case of something like Palestine, we have the additional complication of the mandate supporting in, in international legal terms um, and even requiring Britain to encourage mass European Jewish immigration. So in broad strokes, I would say that most historians are skeptical of the claim that the mandate system was actually intended to bring the states of the Arab Middle East um, closer to national independence. During this interwar period when the mandate system is set up, that's sort of when these ideas about ethnic separation began to take hold and gain in popularity. How did the different countries and, I guess, the different mandate states, how did they approach that concept of ethnic separation? So my argument would be that this has several kind of precursors um, that come together in this particular kind of space and time. Um, one is that this is not entirely a new idea, right, that in fact... The idea of kind of the invention of ethnicities or races or communal identifications on the ground had been a practice of both British and French colonial rule outside the Middle East for quite a long time. So, for instance, there are lots of scholars of colonial India who have suggested that the political divisions between Hindus and Muslims there were at least partially and maybe largely a kind of construction of the colonial state. So it was a practice that they had used elsewhere um, with the idea that populations divided by ethnicity or divided by religion would be easier to govern to preempt the emergence of anti-colonial secular nationalisms. Alongside that, we also have a recent Ottoman past, which had been characterized by massive ethnic expulsions um, on both sides in the conflict between the Ottoman Empire and the Balkan, kind of breakaway Balkan states in the late 19th century. There's also, of course, more recently during the First World War, been the genocidal deportation of the Armenian communities of the Ottoman Empire by the Ottoman state. So there was this idea that this was kind of a, a, a part of the region's recent history that was difficult to erase. And thirdly, I would say that we also have, you know, the rise of Zionism and particularly its acceptance by the British Empire in the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and then its inclusion in the documents for the Mandate for Palestine offered another model of ethno-national separation, physical separation and removal and resettlement on the grounds that it was the realization of a kind of minority nationalism. So in a way, it's, you know, we have these very disparate kind of sources of inspiration for the idea of ethnic separation coming together in this particular place and time in the interwar period in the mandate states. I want to touch back on the, you, you mentioned the active demolition of political institutions within the um, Ottoman Empire or the former Ottoman Empire by the new European powers. Um, and by the brings me to ask about the provincial lines that the Ottoman Empire kind of drew, and were those resembling the lines that the European powers drew, or how did they differ, and um, how did the lines that the Ottoman Empire draw around the provinces have any, were they similarly flawed as we've kind of, you kind of discussed in regards to the European boundary lines? Yeah. You know, this is a really interesting question, because I think there's this idea with reference to the Middle East in particular, that part of the kind of 20th and 21st century dif political difficulties of the region have their roots in a highly artificial state system that the European powers imposed on the Middle East um, after the First World War. 
And of course it is true, right? The In some respects, the European powers did in fact draw new lines. The states of Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and Palestine and Iraq were all new inventions. But it's also, I think, important not to overstate this in that, in a way, all national borders are artificial, right? All national borders are drawn at particular moments for particular reasons, you know, in the interests of particular people. And I would say that, you know, the really one of the things that happens with the imposition of these national borders on the region it has less to do in a way with where those borders precisely are and more to do with the violent nature of their enforcement, right? Um, so the Ottoman provinces did have a different kind of set of organizations. Um, I think there's no question that the lines that were drawn in between you know, 1918 and 1923 were essentially drawn in the interests of the British and French kind of commercial imperial interests that were already there. But also, you know... The, the, re, the really kind of central ex- historical experience of that period for the inhabitants of the region was not so much the drawing of the borders as the presence of a violent military occupation. So I think that's kind of an important thing to keep in mind. Um, these are new states, and their borders are artificially drawn, uh, but that's true very generally in world history. Nation states are artificial constructs. Some of these relocation plans, it seemed like there was significant resistance both within the minority communities that were going to be relocated and the majority populations that were there already. What were the reasons for that resistance and what forms did it take? Yeah, so um, one of the, what I'm basically looking at is the idea that minority communities, by which I mean largely, it's not just not just anyone qualified as a minority under the kind of regime that the league set up. It mostly meant non-Muslim populations who had had diplomatic contacts with European nation states in the 19th century. So in this book, I look at the Jews, um, the Assyrians, and the Armenians, and. Those communities became pawns, I would say, to a certain degree, um, in the colonial claiming of difficult areas around the region. So, for instance, a Syrian resettlement in northern Iraq was undertaken by the British um, in order to make specific kinds of claims to the territory around Mosul, which was still under dispute with Turkey um, as late as 1924 or 25. So we have a situation where these communities themselves find themselves in the kind of unenviable position of having their interests um, very closely aligned with the colonial state. That's something that is recognized as a potentially difficult situation to be in from quite an early date. And while we, we see repeatedly during this period that Assyrian leaders, for instance, don't want their interests to be intertwined with the British. What they want is to be returned to their ancestral homes, which were actually mostly in Turkey. And that was a position that was made, um, was was essentially impossible. And um, their incorporation into the Iraqi state was also difficult because as a kind of Iraqi Arab nationalism took hold, it saw the Assyrians as colonial collaborators, um, particularly as the British absorbed them into the colonial military, um, and so didn't welcome their permanent incorporation into an emerging Iraqi state. 
So it's a situation, I think, I mean, one of the great ironies is that these kinds of, um, these kinds of proposals and plans for population resettlement were often legitimized by saying that they provided security and rights to the minority populations themselves. When we look at sources coming from on the ground, we find that these minority communities resisted these plans very, very vigorously in many cases. So I think that it kind of, it should give us pause in thinking about resettlement as a quote-unquote solution um, to the difficulties of, you know, colonial pluralistic societies. I guess that kind of brings the flip side of that question, which is, what about the minority communities that were in favor of those relocation plans? I mean, you mentioned earlier um, the Zionist movement yeah. in particular. What were their motivations? So, I mean, the big difference with the Zionist population is that they're European, right? They're, it's a European settler community um, who, you know, Zionism is like a lot of other late 19th century European nationalisms that it sought to identify Jewishness not just as an ethnicity or a religion, but as a nation, as a, as a nationhood. And to reposition that nationhood in a specific geographical space, um, in this case in Palestine. Although that actually wasn't the only space that was proposed, right? Which is something else that kind of comes up in the book. So from the beginning, from the late 19th century, Zionism's um, major figures reached out to colonial powers that they thought could assist them in the kind of realization of this plan. And so in a way, Zionism is very deliberately and carefully aligned with the cause of British imperialism, especially um, following 1917. You know, it is, it is a relatively minor movement in the late 19th century. It's the moment that it moves into being a a movement of some importance is that moment when the British Empire decides to take up its cause. So it's with British imperial backing that Zionism gains the opportunity to introduce large numbers of European Jews into Palestine as settlers and as citizens. And it is um, very, at least initially, it does see itself as having interests that are aligned with the colonial state. As time goes on, you know, into the 1930s and 1940s, and I think it becomes clear that the British colonial presence in Palestine is facing significant difficulties, that commitment on the part of the Zionists to the British government, I think, wears thin. And so by the 1940s, we have a situation where Zionism is kind of actively presenting itself as in some ways an anti-colonial movement, where there are these militia attacks that start to take place in Palestine, um, in the most famous being the blowing up of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem in 1946, are directed against British officials and civilians as well as against Palestinian Arabs. So there's kind of an evolution, I think, in that particular case. Returning a few years in the, the interwar period in the 30s, in your forthcoming book, uh, we we got a sneak peek at it, and we saw that you, there's kind of a shift that you talk about in regards to the relocation of populations to partitioning existing states and sep the, the separation mm-hmm. of populations. Can you tell us where this happened? Where where did it and where did it flounder, um, or where was where was the struggle uh, most significant? Yeah, uh, so. 
Partition was something that had been considered alongside ethnic transfer from the beginning of the interwar period. The most kind of salient case is the separation out of Lebanon from Syria, which was something that was, um, you know, met with considerable resistance on the part of lots and lots of players on the ground in nineteen in nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty. But I would argue that its most significant iteration comes later, um, in the late nineteen thirties, when. Uh, in the face of a major anti-colonial revolt in Palestine, a British royal commission reported in 1937 that the only possible solution for the Arab Zionist conflict that had developed in Palestine was the division of the territory into separate Arab and Jewish states. And I think, you know, this is a really interesting moment because, first of all, so this is the beginning of what we think of as the two-state solution now, right? Um, So it's an idea that's still very much with us. And it's often kind of thought of as being a product of a very specific history, you know, that Palestine, because of the Zionist movement's presence there, is different from all of the rest of the Middle East and maybe even a case kind of unto itself globally. And I would suggest that actually the way partition was justified, the way the idea of partition was justified, had a great deal in common with the kind of language that had justified these earlier transfer schemes, that... It was presented as a way of preserving minority self-determination and that this was a new way, you know, it was kind of unprecedented in a way for international organizations to use the term minority to describe a settler colonial community. So it was a a kind of reappropriation of League of Nations language about minority rights to make a case for the physical separation of these two, what, what were being perceived as races. So that word race is often you know, used quite often um, during this period to describe the Arabs and the Jews in Palestine. So, you know, it's an idea that has a very long shelf life. <laughs> and um, I think it's something, it's worth thinking about the way partition and the concept of dividing Palestine into Arab and Jewish states has its origin at least partially in these other kind of iterations of the idea of ethnic separatism that were being played out in other parts of the Middle East during the interwar period as well. Are are there any of those partition states still in existence today, and what are the situations like in those those states now? Well, (laughs) it depends on your definition in a way, right? I mean, we do have... um, kind of partitioning, I suppose, in Israel-Palestine. That's, I think, a situation that, you know, clearly has not represented a real solution and one that is sort of slipping away. You know, there are many people who would think, who who have come to the conclusion over the past decade or so that the two-state solution is no longer a viable one. Syria and Lebanon, of course, are the consequence of a division of territory, if not a kind of partition in the contemporary political science um, you know, definition that is still with us. And I think that's a case where the concept of greater Syria, which was the you know, preferred ideology of many elite nationalists in the period after the First World War, has more or less slipped away. You know, we don't have people kind of advocating for the return of a greater Syrian state in any meaningful way at this stage. So I think, you know, 
Partition is one of those ideas that has been repeatedly proposed in a lot of different contexts, not just in the Middle East, but globally, um, that has its origins in this very specific period and these very specific ideas about ethnic separation. And I think we're hard-pressed to think of an example of partition that did what it was supposed to do if what it was supposed to do was to provide some kind of solution to ethnic conflict. I was hoping we could shift the conversation to the current refugee crisis um, that's ongoing as a result, at least in part, of the Syrian civil war. Can you tell me, why does the situation in Syria seem to be unique? Um, I mean, you saw these wars over the past decade or so in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it didn't seem to create the same sort of refugee crisis that you're seeing as a result of the Syrian civil war. I think there are a lot of different answers to that. Um, One is... uh, that although certainly the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were incredibly destructive, and I don't at all want to downplay that, I think that we don't see the kind of utter and total state collapse that has happened in Syria over the last five years. Syria is now a space that essentially has no functional government, and that's what's allowed for the rise of these non-state actors. Um, It's also a situation that I think Syrian citizens have found, you know, it's difficult for them to imagine this being repaired in their lifetime. So I think that it's led to a kind of very wide-ranging despair on the part of Syrian citizens about the future of Syria as a state that um, was maybe not shared to quite the same extent um, in Iraq or, or Afghanistan. I think also, you know, one of the things that's happened in Syria is that, that that is worth remembering in the context of this refugee crisis is that the surrounding states have largely opened their borders to Syrians who are fleeing the violence. And um, that that's why we have these, you know, tremendous, tremendous numbers of Syrian refugees in places like Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey, that it has been kind of possible to exit in 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 a really substantial, in, in substantial numbers. You mentioned the, the destinations for many of these refugees, um, Turkey, Lebanon, um, one of the, the larger destin- locations for the larger population of refugees. But um, the European countries have gotten um, maybe here a lot more attention on how they're responding to it. And there's been a lot of variety. While Hungary has sealed off its borders to refugees, um, countries like Germany have been a little bit more welcoming. Mm-hmm. And even in our, you know, North America, Canada, the new Canadian government has been very um, uh, welcoming, at least in, in bringing new refugees, while you, our own Congress has, has voiced a lot of opposition. Mm-hmm. So can you elaborate on the historical precedence of these reactions um, and help us kind of determine why, they're, why they're, these nations re- are reacting this way? Yeah. Sure. So I think, I mean, first of all, I think it is actually worth pointing out that the vast majority of refugees from Syria have been absorbed into other other Middle Eastern states and not into Europe or US, the U.S. or Canada. You know, I had a, a colleague of mine was recently talking about this with regard to Lebanon and saying, look, the Lebanese state has taken in more than a million Syrian refugees over the last four years. That's a quarter of the population of the country. So if we can imagine, you know, 120 million people streaming into the U.S. over the course of four years, that would give some proportional um, sense of what that might mean. And that 
prior to the beginning of this kind of stream of refugees into Europe, you know, this was not referred to as a crisis in the same way that it is now. So I think that is worth pointing out um, as a kind of setup to talking about this. In terms of Europe, I think, you know, the response has been very interesting. I think Germany is a case that feels where the government and much of the citizen body feels that it still has something to prove in terms of um, generosity to refugees and migrants and, you know, in as, as a kind of reaction to Germany's 20th century past. Um, that's something that's been discussed a lot in the German press with regard to this kind of openness to refugees. More generally, you know, as you point out quite correctly, Eastern Europe has generally been less welcoming um, to Syrian refugees. And I think that that has a lot of possible kind of historical rationales. Um, One is simply that these are places that are poorer than other parts of Europe and um, that they feel that their resources are already um, stretched in various ways and can't accommodate these kinds of numbers. It's also, of course, a space where, you know, dating from the kind of Balkan exchanges of the late 19th century, there have been significant There are histories of real ethnic and religious violence um, in these spaces that I think are still kind of a part of the collective consciousness there. And I think, too, you know, it's there is a kind of Islamophobia that has informed some of the European debate about refugees and, of course, the American debate as well. And that that has played out, you know, more strongly in some contexts than others. So the divisions that were created in this interwar period... How do those tie into the current refugee crisis and the situation in Syria in general? Yeah. I would say that the interwar period is actually really central for the creation of what we now think of as sectarian tensions in the Middle East. This is the period when, you know, this has been a very, it's always been a very pluralistic space. The interwar period is is a time when under the rubric of the, these various kinds of colonial rule, Religious identity, sectarian identity, ethnic identity took on a new political salience that really changed what it meant for individual citizens, right? So to give you just a really simple example, in Lebanon, the French mandate government routinely offered preferential treatment to Christian populations in education and jobs in, you know, all kinds of all kinds of arenas of access to uh, resources, and that that changed what it meant to be Christian in Lebanon, right? And we can trace very similar kinds of modes of enshrining sectarian difference as politically meaningful, as economically meaningful, as having real implications for the kinds of jobs people could have and the kind of money they could make and what they, the kind of political representation they could expect. And that that has had a long that's cast a long shadow over the the 20th century Middle East, and it's actually a process I would argue that continued to be the basis of American policy in Iraq following the occupation in 2003. Um, that the U.S. administration there continued the previous British, you know, a British-inspired policy of um, enshrining sectarian differences having real political meaning. So this interwar period, you know, has has is part of what helped to create this landscape where 
religious difference meant political conflict. And I, so that's part of the reason it's so centrally important to understand uh, this process, that it helps us to understand that, you know, these portrayals of the Middle East as a place where sectarian violence has been going on for hundreds or thousands of years is radically radically inaccurate and that in point of fact we can trace this kind of conflict specifically to the intervention of colonial authorities in the interwar period and look at how religious difference can be made um, politically and economically salient in new ways Um, so it really it challenges you know it challenges these pervasive stereotypes about religious conflict as being endemic to the region and replaces that with actual specific historical explanation. The idea of relocation and partitioning uh, for vulnerable populations, um, is that, have, do you see that still now within the Middle East? Uh, I'm thinking about populations like the Kurdish population or different groups of the seeking the, the, their own state. Um, is that falling back on the, the history of this interwar period more, or is it a step in a, um, a new direction or just another horizontal direction of, of history? I mean, it's really amazing to me how the idea of repartitioning the region has continued to be a part of the discourse, right? I mean, in the last 10 years, and maybe especially in the last five years, this has been one of the purported, quote, solutions that has been put forward to the wars in Syria and Iraq, um, that maybe the redivision of territory along ethnic, religious, linguistic lines would somehow preempt this kind of violence. And that's an idea that traces its roots directly to this interwar period. It's also an idea that is has been proven time and time again to be radically mistaken, right? So I would say, you know, there are so many arguments against this, but historically speaking, it is never possible to create ethnically homogenous spaces without mass violence. And um, I think that the persistence of this narrative that partition and separation and division literal physical division can somehow solve ethnic conflict um, is is astonishing given what we actually know about the historical record of those kinds of policies and the way they were implemented largely, not for the benefit of populations on the ground, but rather for the benefit of those doing the um, repositioning. So perhaps we can wrap up the conversation by asking you about the relationship between social policy and history. How do you think the history of European partitioning, population displacement, and mandate states can help inform this policy discussion going on right now around this uh, Syrian refugee crisis? So I think, I mean, historians are generally uncomfortable suggesting policy, right? (laughs) But I do think that, you know, one of the things that having a sense of how this these the, a sense of these histories and of how this kind of imposition of particular kinds of ethnic policy on the region by the European powers in the 1920s and 30s and 40s has had these long shadows you know this can help us to understand that these issues that are arising now in the context of the Syrian civil war are global issues and they are issues that powers outside the Middle East have a responsibility to address because of their past historical participation in um, the the kinds of policies that helped to create the situation. So I think that, um, you know, without suggesting kind of specific 
ways that that might inform particular policies, I would say that it is centrally important to understand how these conditions came to be in order to have a sense of collective responsibility about um, participating in policy solutions. Mm -hmm. Laura Robson, your book, Transfer Partition and the Making of the Modern Middle East, when can we anticipate uh, seeing that book on the shelves? I am hoping that it will be next fall or early next winter on the shelves. Excellent. We're, I think both, I can say, are very looking forward to seeing that and reading it ourselves. Definitely. Laura Robson, author, speaker, and professor of modern Middle Eastern history here at Portland State. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. Music in this episode from Yola Tango and Yaga Yazitz. We want to take a moment to thank our listeners who tuned in today. Your support is so greatly appreciated. If you want to help us out even more, tell your friends about the show. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can hear past episodes of Beyond Footnotes by visiting soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes, kpsu.org, or going to pdx.edu slash history. Signing off, I'm Joshua Justice. And I'm Ryan Wisnor. Tune in to KPSU at 11 every Tuesday night for Cascadian Radio, showcasing the best music from around the Pacific Northwest and beyond, featuring in-studio performances, interviews, and DJ sets from Portland's best musicians. Once again, that's 11 p.m. on Tuesday nights, Cascadian Radio. Hey, you Radio Land listeners interested in being involved with KPSU? Whether it's doing album or concert reviews or even hosting your own show, you can be a volunteer here at KPSU. 
KPSU is dedicated to amplifying the voice and experience of students at Portland State University through free format radio programming. We've got a wide variety of entertainment, journalism, and specialty shows, all produced by PSU students and community member volunteers. So if you're interested in being involved in any way, or even hosting your own show here at KPSU, email our volunteer director at volunteer at kpsu.org. That's volunteer at kpsu.org.